I invite you this morning as we begin to simply listen as I read a litany of texts from Scripture, which will set us up for what's going to be a highly thematic message this morning. Genesis 4, 2 through 5. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions of sacrificed animals from the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. His sacrifices were no good. Genesis 9, 20 through 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and set, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground. Exodus twenty twenty four, Make an altar of earth, God said to Moses, for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Exodus 29, 1 and following, instructions for the consecration of priests at the temple and at the tabernacle. This is what you are to do to consecrate them so they may serve me as priests, says the Lord. Take a bull and two rams without defect. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting, take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar." Take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall, again, lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, and take the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides. Blood everywhere. 1 Kings 8, at the consecration of Solomon's temple, we read that those gathered there sacrificed, quote, so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded. It's a bloodbath. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The question before us this morning is, as asked by somebody in our community, why is the Bible a bloodbath? Truth is, much of the Bible is a bloodbath. As one has said, when you read through the Old Testament in particular, you begin to get the impression that life in Israel was a constant perpetual, and perennial barbecue. They always had something burning on the altar. And then in the New Testament, of course, you have the theme of Christ's own blood flowing from the cross by which we are saved. And this theme in Scripture, sisters and brothers, is, I think, not surprisingly, a bit of a stumbling block to us modern people, especially to those on the outside of the church. 
because it seems to portray the God of the Bible as a bloodthirsty tyrant, a violent-seeking potentate. And it seems to portray Christianity and the Judaism from which it stems as something of a rank, archaic religion. And the fact that we Christians worship the blood of Christ in song doesn't help much. Who sings like we do? It's kind of disgusting if you hear it with outside ears. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or in hymn 552 in the old grade Psalter piled up at the back of the sanctuary right now, we sing the words, the blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary. It reaches the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley. That's a lot of blood to celebrate. And rightly, it leads to the question, why, after all, is the Bible such a bloodbath? And Christians sing about the precious blood. Well, beloved of God, let me just say right at the outset that in attempting to provide some sort of answer to this, what turns out to be a profoundly difficult and involved question this morning, because it draws into its orbit some of the deepest themes in Scripture, let me just say as a disclaimer that the sermon today will be massively partial and incomplete. I will only be able to trace and try and give one thread of an answer. Uh, nonetheless, with a topic as this, that's, is, that is as it must be. So with those disclaimers made, let me make a start. Why is the Bible a bloodbath? Well, I think it's helpful in approaching this question as a starting point to begin by recognizing that while, yes, it is absolutely true that the Bible is in a large way a bloodbath, where we witness, witness as the text we just read, the sacrifice of innumerable innocent animals, while this is true, we should also recognize that history itself, according to Scripture, is also a bloodbath where we witness human beings making a bloodbath of one another's lives, both literally and metaphorically. It's violence of human against human. As it were, human beings sacrificing one another. And we know this to be true in history, of course, even recent history. In the 20th century alone, historians calculate 123 million people died in war. In 2018, there were over 16,000 deaths by homicide in the U.S. alone. 16,000. Basic point, we have a habit of killing each other. And Scripture, too, attests to this. In fact, notice, incredibly importantly, notice that the very first story we are told in Genesis, on the other side of the gates of paradise, after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden due to their revolt against God, the first story is a story about homicide. And in fact, 
fratricide, where a brother murders a brother, Cain murders Abel, and Abel's blood cries out from the ground. And one of the reasons this is so significant is not simply because it tells us the historical story of Cain and Abel, because it's also because it tells us the story of us all as individuals and as societies. Because you see, beloved, these early stories in Genesis, as scholars point out, are not simply and flatly historical. They are also archetypal or representative. Which is to say, these stories do not only aim to teach us remotely about something that happened in the distant past, but like iconic myths or epic stories, they aim to teach us deep truths, the deepest of all truths about what is happening all the time universally. They're trying to teach us about what is true about us and the world we live in so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. They have this double function, if you will. And in particular then, with the Cain and Abel story, we're being taught by Holy Scripture that one of the consequences of our rebellion against God, one of the first and most important consequences or significant consequences, is that now we human beings, whether we recognize it in ourselves or not, we have the propensity, the natural inclination, the bent toward murder and toward violence against other image bearers in our thoughts as well as our deeds and especially perhaps toward those who are most like us most equal to us most our brothers and sisters remember the Heidelberg Catechism one of our confessions in this church one of our creeds confessions in this church says that human beings have a natural hatred for God and for their neighbor the Catechism says this because it is a reflection of the teaching of Scripture. We have a bent towards violence and murder. This is true not only on the individual level, I might add, but it's true on the corporate and communal level as well. Because as Scripture will also attest, societies and nations too will have a propensity toward violence and murder as are many wars and the bloodbath of history bear out all too clearly. Now, why is making this rather simple and prosaic observation helpful? That is to say, why is it helpful to recognize that indeed, while on the one hand, Scripture is a bloodbath of animal sacrifice, among other sacrifices, but I'm focusing on the animal, ritual violence against animals, human history is also a bloodbath. But this time of human sacrificing, committing violence of various sorts against one another in thought and deed. Well, I'll tell you why, saints. It's because, according to Scripture, there is a connection between these two things. There's a connection. We see it, in fact, immediately in the same archetypal Cain and Abel story. And this is sometimes missed. In short, Cain fails in the field of life because Cain fails at the altar of sacrifice. Cain engages, engages in violence against humanity, in thought and deed, murdering his brother Abel, because Cain fails to offer a right sacrifice to God and refuses, even when urged by God, to go and make the right sacrifice. God says to Cain, 
if you do what is right, and in context, to do what is right is to go and make the right sacrifice. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted, Cain? But Cain refuses, and then goes ahead and kills Abel. From this story, we can see that the connection is, the biblical logic here of sacrifice is, in a simple way, if you fail at the altar, friends, fail to make the right sort of ritual sacrifices with the right heart in the right way, you will somehow or other be predisposed toward violence against other human beings. That seems to be the connection. We see the same connection not only at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, if you will, in the fourth chapter of Genesis, but all the way at the end of the Hebrew Bible in the book of Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament before we get to the Gospel of Matthew. In that book, Israel's individual and collective failure at the altar also leads to failure, to violence against other humans in the field of life. To give just one example, in the beginning of the book, God indicts the people of Israel, especially the priests, for sacrificing defective animals, blind animals, maimed animals, imperfect animals. It's a symbol, says the prophet, that their hearts aren't right and they don't want their sacrifice to cost them anything, that they're treating both God and themselves far too lightly. This failure at the altar explains the prophet, is a failure to take seriously God's covenant, quote, given to Aaron of life and peace. Life and peace. Somehow, sacrificing at the altar is to perpetuate peace in the society. And if it's not done, violence will break out. Malachi gives an instance of this toward the end of his book when he thunders at the men in Israel for abandoning their wives, which is seen as tantamount to committing violence against them. Malachi 2 and 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, which is to say, I hate a man's covering his wife with violence as well as with a garment. Covering his wife with violence as well as with a garment. There's some background here. To cover with a garment in Israel was to pledge marriage, as Boaz does for Ruth as she sleeps at his feet. To pull back the cover of marriage is tantamount in that culture where a woman would be left bereft and vulnerable to a certain kind of violence, according to Malachi. And this sort of thing is going on in Israel because, Malachi implies, Israel's failing at the altar with their sacrifices. So you see the connection here, people of God? The connection is this. If we fail properly to participate in, as it were, the bloody sacrifice of animals in acts of ritual sacrifice, then Scripture seems to show we will begin to participate in the real or metaphorical blood spilling in violence against other human beings. That's the connection. Now, the million-dollar question is, why is this true? Which is to say, why is it according to Scripture that if we fail at the altar in making the right sacrifices, um, and in the Old Testament, the right blood sacrifices of usually pure, unblemished, undefective, firstborn, and thus costly animals, why is it that if we fail to make those kinds of sacrifices, 
at the altar will also end up failing in the field of life and end up as individuals or discrete societies shedding the blood, either literally or figuratively again, of our fellow human beings. Or, to put the question positively so I can deal with it a little more straightforwardly, here's a question. Why would engaging in the bloody biblical sacrificial system, offering right sacrifices in the right way, with the right heart, as prescribed by God, have helped Cain <laughs> and have helped the men in Malachi's day not to commit various forms of violence? That is the question. How could it have helped stem their violent propensity? Well, let me just put one answer out there and then try to explain it. Again, just one answer of what may be several. I believe, beloved, in reading Scripture in one hand and human history in the other hand, that adhering with his heart and practice to the biblical sacrificial system would have helped Cain as well as Israel later, as well as any who would engage in it, according to God's prescriptions, because of this. And this is going to be hard to understand. I will unpack it. Don't worry. But it's because of this. Because the bloody biblical sacrificial system as ordained by God was designed to interrupt, to put an end to, what the French scholar René Girard has identified in looking at archaic religions and the phenomena of violence throughout human history as what he calls the scapegoat mechanism. Okay? So the bloody sacrificial system was designed to interrupt, to put an end to, what Girard has called handily, the scapegoat mechanism. Now, I know this sounds ridiculously complicated, and indeed the full theory is, I just finished a 350-page book on it, it's tough and it's involved, but the gist of Girard's theory is actually pretty easy to grasp, and I think it makes stupendously good sense of what we see going on in the Old Testament legislation about sacrifice. And notice I'm focusing on the OT at the moment. We'll get to the new T later. New T. New Testament later. Let me attempt to explain the scapegoat mechanism to you to begin. What is this scapegoat mechanism? Well, in a nutshell, it works like this. Try and see this in your own experience. It doesn't take very long of living in this world for a human being or for human communities to face a crisis or a series of crises of some sort or another to realize deep down inside that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We have utopia in our hearts and find the world a dystopia. We have the stamp of the longing for heaven, but we find ourselves in a sort of hell. We might face a crisis like Cain, where he feels victimized by the fortune of another, or we might face a crisis like the tragic loss of a loved one. Or maybe we collectively face a crisis of plague. Or of civil unrest. Or of ecological disaster. Whatever. It happens to us all. And certainly can do. And in monstrous ways sometimes we face crises in our lives. And what is the typical an almost inbuilt response to these sorts of crises and suffering, whether individual or collective. Well, usually it's twofold. First, we say, 
someone or something on the outside is responsible for the hell that has become my life or our world. Someone or something is to blame. Case in point, Cain blames Abel for the lack of God's favor in his life. I blame the doctors for the loss of my loved one. We all blame this or that people group, like the Nazis blame the Jews and Gypsies and Hitler's Germany for the lack of utopia in their own society. The archaic religious group blames the apparently flawed or mangled person in their midst as the cause for the collective plague or ecological disaster. It's blame the stigmatization of the other as the blameworthy agent. And then second, after we've identified the person or people or things to blame for the condition of our lives, we say in our heart, they must pay for it. They must pay. Because somehow or other we believe we know that if someone pays, peace will be restored against again. Balance will be restored to the universe. If the one who has literally or metaphorically been found to spill blood has their blood spilled, all will be well, or at least we believe better, and the bad will cease. And so we do go ahead and make them pay. Cain kills Abel. I sue the doctors. The ancient religious group engages in collective murder of the one who is said to be guilty or defective. The peace is restored to the community, at least in theory. This, in belo- this beloved, in a very tight nutshell, is the scapegoat mechanism. To repeat, in the midst of unrest, strife, and pain, I say, someone is to blame for this. In fact, he is. She is. They are to blame. And then I add, and he or she or they or it must pay for the hell that has become my world, our world. In other words... The guilt and responsibility for things going wrong are placed on the individual or group or thing that is seen to be defective or guilty. And that thing, guilty as it is, becomes the scapegoat. The goat that is either killed or exiled, sent out into the desert by the community so peace can be restored. If we get rid of the scapegoat, the cause of our anxiety and pain, and the guilty one, then all things will be well again. This is the scapegoat mechanism. And it is almost needless to say, but we should acknowledge it anyways, that this is utterly endemic to the human race, which is probably why we get a picture of it once again with the first story out of the gate of Eden in Scripture, with Cain, who blames Abel for God's disfavor of him, and then makes Abel pay for it, canceling his very existence on earth, spilling his blood with a high hand. And actually, we see the scapegoat mechanism happening even before this, at least implicitly, when after rebelling against God's word with his wife, Adam is first confronted by God, and Adam says, why did I eat God? Well, the woman gave me some fruit. The woman that you put here gave me some fruit. Instead of first taking responsibility for his role as an individual, a sovereign individual created in the image of God, instead of taking responsibility for his role in the unraveling of the world, Adam blames. 
blames the woman and even tries to blame God himself and implicitly suggests they should pay. God and the woman become Adam's scapegoat. Now, to come full circle, why is the Old Testament bloody sacrificial legislation an antidote, a fix, if you will, to this scapegoat mechanism, at least in theory? Well, because look at what it does, friends, or at least what it attempts to do. It completely interrupts the scapegoat mechanism. It seeks to put an end to it. Consider, the scapegoat mechanism says, as we've already said, but I want to juxtapose, okay? So the scapegoat mechanism says, you, the other, the person on the outside of me, you are first and foremost to blame for the hell that has become my life and, and or of this world. It's your sin and your defectiveness and your blemishes and your guilt that has brought us here. But as Israel was called to the temple to sacrifice, as God prescribed it, Israel was repeatedly taught, yes, yes, there may be problems out there with others, and there certainly and unquestionably is. But before that, O oh, son and daughter of Adam, you need to take responsibility for your own sin, for your own defects as an individual as well as a community, a nation of mine in this world. The first problem in the world to be addressed and redressed is not the problem on the outside, out there. It's right here, staring back at you in the mirror. And so if you want to start the blame game, first take a very good, long, hard look at yourself and repent. You are the problem you are looking for. Confess that sin by bringing forth an animal. Again, the scapegoat mechanism says the other is to blame and thus the other must pay. You are justified in spilling their blood. Abel, Abel's the problem and so Cain is justified in killing him. The wife is the source in Malachi's day of the men's displeasure and so they believe they're justified in making her a scapegoat and chucking her out no matter what it does to her. But without denying that others may be guilty and even providing a system of jurisprudence to make judgments and pursue justice in Scripture, the sacrifices that Israel are called upon to make teach Israel that when it comes to making payments for sin, you yourself individual or you yourself nation of Israel must first pay. Bring an animal, a perfect one, an unblemished one, the one that is your prized possession to your flock, and bring that forward as a first order of business. Your impulse is always going to be to point out and make others pay for their sins that have hurt you and want to exact revenge, to stigmatize the other. But this sacrificial system, Israel, is designed to teach you to reverse that impulse and make sure that you are habituated to pointing out and paying for your own sins first. Don't look for scapegoats, which is the pathway to violence in the real world. But look down into yourself and take responsibility and repent. By the way, have you ever wondered why the Old Testament so much, 
puts so much emphasis on the quality of the sacrifice. It can't be defective, no blemishes, perfect in every way. It seems to be that God requires this because such an unblemished, pure, spotless, precious, innocent creature cuts off all possibility that Israel might begin thinking that their sacrifices were scapegoats. That those creatures were actually the guilty ones that once they got rid of them, all things would become better. Because a perfect animal? An unblemished one? A pure and innocent one? When you're sacrificing that sort of animal, you are reminded that it is not being sacrificed for its guilt, for its imperfection, for its defects that have led to catastrophe and pain in the world. But it's dying as a substitute for you for your imperfection, for your guilt, for your blemishes that have or can lead to catastrophe and pain in the world. The point is made another way in Israel, and you see it best by contrast. In other religions and our scapegoat practices, the defective, and let's say goat, the defective or blemished goat would be brought forward blamed for the ills of society and then cut off or cast out into the desert to cleanse, symbolically push out the evil from the community from its midst, from its midst, out of its midst. It was the scapegoat. It carried guilt and then it was sent out to cleanse the community. In Israelite religion, by contrast, a perfectly pure and undefiled goat would be brought forward, and then the priests would lay their hands on the goat's head, and then they would confess their and Israel's sin over that goat, allowing it, that sin, symbolically to pass from them into the goat, and then send that goat away into the desert, carrying Israel's sin on its back. Very importantly, this, the goat was not a scapegoat, you see. The goat in Israel was a substitute goat. And the difference can hardly be exaggerated. And so you see, the net effect of the sacrificial system in Israel, folks, was to be the curtailing of the natural human tendency toward various forms of violence against other humans. Because, you know, just to wrap up, when I am fully aware of the depth and cost of my own sin, of my own faults, of my own blemishes, not only to society, but even more in the presence of a glorious and holy God and the blood that it requires to atone for it, the life it requires to atone for it, when I am aware of that, I'm going to tread lightly and carefully and gently and humbly when it comes to trying to hold others accountable for their sins and trying personally to make them pay for it. In other words, to the degree that I learn to see my own sin as a sort of violence against myself in the world, and I'm humbled by that vision, to that same degree will my inclination to enact violence against others for their sin and its consequences be lessened. This seems to be something of the deep logic behind Israel's whole bloody sacrificial system. G.K. Chesterton, the brilliant journalist and apologist for the Christian faith, once responded to a newspaper inviting people in London to respond in essay form to the following question. What is wrong with the world? 
Chesterton wrote back the shortest essay that paper ever received. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That response really about sums up the force and function of Israel's bloody sacrificial system the way we have been tracing it this morning. It was designed, at least in part, among all its many other functions, it was designed to teach them to look at themselves first and be humbled, to become contrite, thus to help them become more peaceful and less violent against others, which is our natural human inclination, to see the other as the problem for the world's ills, not ourselves first. Now, goodness me, but what about Jesus Christ? We will rightfully want to ask. Like, where does Jesus' blood fit in all of this? Well, truth be told, there is way, way, way too much to be said about this. And so let me just say one thing, which will actually amount to two. Very briefly, Christ's coming and being murdered and shedding his blood and dying on the cross served to reveal two things in this regard. It revealed and still reveals the nightmarish depths, the nightmarish depths to which we humans are committed to the scapegoat mechanism, to casting blame on others and making them pay for sin instead of facing our own sin. That's the first thing. And the second thing it revealed and still reveals is the fact that we need a better substitute for our sin than the blood of bulls and goats and birds if we are in fact to be reconciled to God, atoned to God. Let me expand just a bit. In terms of the first revelation, Scripture tells us that Jesus was not only unblemished, but utterly perfect, without sin, without guilt, entirely. He was the perfect specimen of a human being. And yet, consider it, we human beings in our sin identified him as the source of our problems, found him guilty, and tried to pass him off as our scapegoat by killing him on a cross and shedding his, as the Gospels would tell us, his innocent blood. So committed are we to hiding from our own sins and wanting to blame others for the ills of this world that even when it came to perfection itself, to God in human flesh, we were able to find him guilty, condemn him, and cut him off. Extraordinary. But Jesus was no scapegoat. He was totally perfect and pure. However, second, Scripture also reveals that Jesus came and willingly gave himself to this sad and tragic end because he wanted to, because he loves us, Because he and the Father and the Spirit know that if we are to be reconciled to God, if our sins are to be atoned for, we need not a better scapegoat, but a better substitute for our sin. One who will, unlike the goat, actually carry our sins away. As the author of Hebrews writes, the substitute animals in Israel's sacrificial system were but a shadow, a symbol of what was to come. Animals cannot die as a substitute for human sin because an animal cannot properly stand in for a human being. Only a human can do that. And that's why Scripture teaches that God became human and went to the cross to 
pay once and for all for our sins, yours and mine and everyone's, in order to reconcile us to God and as a world of forgiven sinners who worship the Lord then to put an end, Lord willing, to all violence once and for all, eventually, in the kingdom that is yet to come. That day has begun in Christ, friends, and one day the day will be fully here. Let us watch for it and anticipate it by living lives of forgiveness, receiving the forgiveness that we, re- we get from God, that God grants to us by his grace, and then also offering that same forgiveness to others, breaking the chain of violence. May God give us strength. It is the way of Christ, the way of the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.